Welcome to the Lighthouse Community Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope today's teaching will encourage you in your faith and help you develop an increasing desire to walk with God. Let's listen in. Good morning, Lighthouse. It is uh, wonderful to be with you today. I've been away for a couple weeks, and uh, it is always great to come back to this church family and to be part of Lighthouse. Yeah, I'm feel, I feel fortunate, actually, to be part of this crew. Um, <clears throat> my name is Larry Sewell. I'm one of the elders here at the Lighthouse, and I hope you feel welcome here today, whether you're uh, watching online or going to take this in next week, or whether you're here uh, in the house. We're just glad that you're here worshiping with us this morning. Pastor Fritz kicked off our new series last week. It's called Revealed. It's from the beginning part of the book of Revelation, a, a name that actually means to reveal something that has been previously hidden, the book of Revelation. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ recorded for us by John, and it contains beautiful imagery, and it speaks about things that were, things that are, and also things that are to come. John was in the spirit as he wrote this vision, a vision that's been revealed to us uh, as a church. It's to us together. Today, we're going to be in the first part of chapter two, and the focus there is on the church at Ephesus. This is one of the seven short letters in the book of Revelation written to the churches. As we study Revelation, probably as much or more than any other book in the Bible, it is essential that we dial in to exactly what's said. Nothing more and also nothing less, that we hear the voice of God from the scriptures. So as you turn to uh, Revelation chapter 2 or you click over to your device, I'm going to read that in just a few minutes. But I want to talk just a couple, about a couple things from chapter 1 that lead us into the study of the churches. First of all, Jesus is depicted in Revelation chapter 1 is the one with a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. Now we know from other places in the scriptures that the sword of the Holy Spirit is the word of God. We know that. We know that the word of God has the power to dissect our heart, to show us what's really there, to show us what's true. Our intentions are revealed by the scripture. In fact, the scriptures show us to ourselves. They help us have discernment. It's interesting that when uh, Jesus is revealing these things to us, he doesn't send a personal letter to you or a personal letter to me. Instead, he sends, at the very beginning of Revelation, letters to churches, all of us together in community. These letters are meant to be read aloud, and in the day, these churches would be passed between churches. So this church would receive a letter, but they would pass it to that church so everyone could hear the voice of God. So in a very real sense, you could say that the letters to the churches in the book of Revelation are letters to Lighthouse also. This is God revealing himself to us. And there's a promise in the book of Revelation. Those who hear the word uh, that's spoken in the book of Revelation and put into practice, they, they actually align their lives with what's said. There's great blessing in that. This is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. It's, it's not human speculation. In fact, it's God speaking directly to us And because it's true, we can trust it, 
and it never returns void. We can, we can believe that. God has written down what he wants us to know as churches to align ourselves with that. God is Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. He is the one who's loved us. He has set us free from the effect and the penalty of sin by shedding his blood. He's the one who's going to return. And on that day, everybody is going to see him. There's not going to be anything hidden then. The risen one who is alive, death can't hurt him. Death can't hurt us because Jesus holds the keys to death. Jesus firmly holds in his right hand the angels that are assigned to the churches. And he walks among the churches. In fact, Jesus walks among us here at Lighthouse. That's the teaching of Scripture. And together, we are the ones who make up Lighthouse. Lighthouse isn't a building or some idea. Lighthouse is the people of God in this place. Jesus is walking among us now. That's something to take heart as we listen to. These seven letters are meant to be read in churches like Lighthouse. So the reading today is uh, Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, and we'll read through verse 7. To the angel of the church at Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, that is the angels, and walks among the seven golden lampstands, that is the churches. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have been found and have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But this I have against you. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen and repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the work of the Nicolodians, which I also hate. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's pray together before we dive into this passage. God, it is my prayer that you would give us great discernment, great clarity, and great understanding. Let us hear your voice today as we work through this passage from your holy word. I pray this through Jesus. Amen. I'd like to just work down together through the passage and let the passage itself become the outline for this morning. Just starting with verse 1 and then kind of work down the passage today. Uh, So verse uh, 1 of chapter 2, the angel to the church at Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the golden lampstands. You can read about the planting of the church at Ephesus in the book of Acts. It's actually a real place. In fact, all of the seven churches are there on the ancient map, and you can see the island of Patmos just off the shore. These are real places and real events that are mentioned in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. These churches really existed, but not only were they historic churches, they're also representative churches. You could say that there are types of churches, 
churches that we can learn from by reading about those churches. It's very important that uh, each of these churches, God is revealing something important to the church that he wants us to hear. And it's important to mine those nuggets out as we study Revelations 2 and 3. The church is important to God, such that uh, it's the centerpiece, actually, of his plan, his sovereign plan for the ages. God is deeply involved and deeply cares for the church. In fact, he sends his angels. The church is represented here as the golden lampstand. It doesn't take a lot of creativity to figure out what he's talking about. Their lampstand is something that holds light, light that shines into a dark world, a world uh, that is very far from God. And the people of the church, people that are sitting here today, we have the light of God in us. Okay, And collectively, as we show that light uh, to the world, uh, it's us that, that push back darkness, that push back against Satan, who remains in this world, as we'll read later in Revelation, uh, for a short time. He's not going to be here forever. Darkness can't extinguish light. In fact, darkness always yields to light. It takes something else to extinguish light. Verse 2, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance. I, I know how you can't bear against those, uh, you can't, uh, that you cannot bear with those who are evil, that you've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. You found them to be false. I know you are enduring great, uh, patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and that you've not grown weary. As I read these uh, verses, um, this is a, is a church that's strong. A church doing the work of God, pushing back against evil people. You know, God, in his character, is holy and just. He can't bear with evil. And when we stand against evil, we're actually standing with God. This church had patient endurance. They were standing for the truth. And that's not a once-and-done kind of thing. It's much more like a marathon than it is a sprint. We live in an evil world, and pushing back against darkness is something we have to do over and over again. But they had patient endurance for the sake of Jesus and of his name. They were standing for what was true. And there's great cost when we do that. We know John was exiled to Patmos at the time he was writing this letter because of the, the testimony of Jesus that he bore. This church had the discernment to know the difference between false teaching and correct teaching. They were students of truth, and they knew the difference. In a world that's full of deception, they could tell the difference between what was true and what was not. This was a church that had strength, patience, doctrinal purity, they had endurance, and, and there was tremendous cultural pressure against them, and yet all of those things were true of this church. And so I asked myself, should Lighthouse be a church like this one, a church that's doctrinally pure and strong and, and stands against falsehood? In the face of wealth and a very busy city and lots of false worship, Paul went right in with the gospel, and many, many people became saved. He only spent uh, three weeks with the Thessalonians, but he spent a couple years at this place teaching, a couple years unloading the truth. When he left, he left Timothy behind, one of his trusted compadres, to continue teaching. Uh, there's letters in the Bible written to Timothy that explain all kinds of things about the, uh, the, the, the church and the gospel. 
He, Paul himself writes a letter to this church in Ephesus. It's a church where leaders of the church for years have always gone back to study doctrine and, and to receive truth. This was a church that was all about truth. It was a great church. Paul appointed elders at this place, elders who could teach the whole counsel of God. It was a steady, true, solid place. All of those things are baked into Ephesus. But did you know you can actually go to modern Turkey and now see the evidences, the ruins of the church of Ephesus? It's no longer a church. Ephesus sounds like a wonderful place, the kind of church that you want to be, right? A church that stands for the truth, a church that has endurance, all of those things that we, we admire in a church. And yet, there was something seriously wrong with this church. You know, it's not enough to be doctrinally pure. It's not enough to have correct thoughts about what God says. That's not enough. In fact... Thinking that it is enough, John would say, should lead us to repentance. Repentance, right? Um, We associate with repentance as turning from something that's sinful and wrong, leaving that stuff behind and going this way instead. And John's calling us to think about repentance when we're talking about this church at Ephesus, which seems so strong from the outside. It's interesting when John starts the book of Revelation, this, this, revel, this, uh, this imagery and this great uh, teaching to tell us of what is to come, he starts by talking about the churches. And when he talks about the churches, he starts right at Ephesus. Ephesus is the church where everybody would have looked and said, that's the church to be like. That's the church of Ephesus, Ephesus that we should emulate. And yet there was something seriously wrong. We read that in verse 4. This I have against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Just let that sink in a little bit. This I have against you. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. This language makes it really easy to think of kind of modern examples of what it means to lose your first love. You've probably all experienced couples that are engaged, right? Sometimes, I mean, yeah, sometimes it's like, uh, it's, a, it's pretty sappy. It's, you know, it's romantic. And they're saying all kinds of stuff to each other, and you just wish you didn't have to hear it. And yeah, but you know, sometimes those couples, they get married, and then 10 years in, something's happened. And sometimes we look at that with awe, we look and say, how could, how could those guys be divorced. How could they, how could they, uh, they lose the love that they had at the beginning. It was so obvious that they loved each other, and yet it's gone. The magic is gone. Maybe you've had a job where when you started that job, this is the best job in the world. You know, you're talking to people, you're excited about the first paycheck, and you're like gung-ho, you're getting up early, having coffee, going to work. You're talking about it because it's great, right? And then 10 years in, things are a little different. Maybe you're a little bored. Maybe you're looking for a new challenge. But the, the fire that was there at the beginning is no longer there. You've, you've kind of lost your first love for that, that place and, that, and you no longer really want to do that work and you find yourself somewhere else doing something else. 
What was the love that the Ephesians had at the beginning that they lost? They had abandoned, they had walked away from. Now, I don't think Jesus is saying that doctrinal purity is bad. I don't think he's saying that at all, because we know in Scripture that the truth has a very, very high importance to God. But I would say this, a life that substitutes doctrinal correctness okay, for biblical faith, okay, that kind of church where it's a lifeless kind of faith that doesn't take action, that kind of faith is actually very, very far away from the faith that's described in the Bible. In fact, I would say this, lifeless faith is not biblical faith. In fact, uh, Christianity is all about heart change. It's all about something that happens here that transforms the life and the heart of the person. Absent the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit, uh, lifeless faith is actually a big miss. In fact, it may be a profoundly deceptive substitute Nice church, as opposed to a changed heart walking with God. This respected church knew everything about the Bible. They studied with Paul for two years, okay? I mean, they understood the Bible. They understood the truth of Scripture. I had a pastor friend of mine ask me if I would come on staff with him about five years ago. This was a church that was growing rapidly. We had lots of bucks in the bank, you know, lots of people in the seats and lots of bucks in the bank. They taught scripture. They cared for each other. This was a church that was growing rapidly, talking about a building plan. Because they were growing rapidly, because they were financially strong, everybody looked at this church and said, this is a great church. This is a place to invest your time and invest your life. But as I talked to them a little bit, I learned that in the prior 10 years, 10 years, they had had zero new believers. They had had zero baptisms. Everybody's looking at this church saying, look how fast it's growing. They're talking about a building plans. Look at these people we know that go there. Look at the cars in the parking lot. And they had zero baptisms, zero new believers. It was a lifeless church. It was dead. A church that taught the Bible had strong bank accounts, started well, but something had happened in between. I talked to one of the old-timers at the church, and I said, hey, tell me about what this church was like in the early days. And he said, well, when this church started, we had a pastor that was dialed into the discipleship. We were studying Scripture together. We saw God moving. We saw people coming to faith. We saw baptisms. All of that was true in the beginning. And somehow, that had become their past. They had lost their first love. So I want to do some diagnostics. I want to kind of dive into this church and find out what it means to have a first love. What was that first love like for this church? We can read about it in Acts chapter 18 through 20. You can do that at home and study the church of Ephesus and how it started and, and kind of pick off the characteristics of this church. In the very beginning, a guy named Apollos was there. He's a great teacher, a great speaker, but he wasn't real clear on doctrine, okay? And Aquila and Priscilla, they came in. This was like a husband-wife ministry team, and they corrected some of those deficiencies in the thinking, and the teaching continued on. Paul came to visit, and he first met with some people who hadn't heard of the Holy Spirit. 
they were seeking God but hadn't heard of the Holy Spirit and they became believers. And not long after that, there was all kinds of pressure in the synagogue and they got thrown out. They said, you can't teach here anymore. So Paul took the believers that were there and they went to a lecture hall called the Lecture Hall of Tyrannius. And there they began to debate the truth. Miracles were happening. Believers, uh, people were coming to faith. Evil spirits were present. There were riots in the street. Riots were happening. People were saying, great is God, the God Artemis, you know, that fell down from heaven. Okay, And then on the other side, Paul is talking about the name of Jesus. And this great tension exists that, such that there are riots in the street. It's all messy. It's really, really confused in the very beginning. But in Acts chapter 19, we read these words. Solemn fear descended on the city, and the name of Jesus was greatly honored. Many believers confessed their sinful practices, and after that happened, there was a public bonfire. There's all this mysticism going on, and people had all these magical books and all this stuff, and they started a fire, and they threw all that stuff in, and millions of dollars of books were burned in the city square as these people turned from their past, they put it beside them, and they turned to God wholeheartedly. Right in the middle of the cesspool of, of secular wealth and religious idolatry, the Holy Spirit was moving. People were hearing the gospel. And not only were they turning to faith, their lives were being transformed as they walked away from the past and they leaned into God. The word of God, God was prevailing mightily, mightily such that Paul decided to stay there for two years and to teach these people and raise them up in the faith. It said that the church at Ephesus actually became the gospel hub for all of Asia. That's what was going on at the beginning. In chapter 20, Paul speaks to the Ephesian elders, the people that had been raised up to lead the church after he left. He was going to go to Jerusalem for an unknown fate. And there's another clue about what this church was like in the beginning in his final words to those elders. I am going now to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, he says, not knowing what's going to happen to me, only that the Holy Spirit testifies to me that in every city, imprisonment and afflictions await me. I don't count my life of any value or precious to myself if only I may finish the course and the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. What I see in this church in the beginning is a church that had reckless abandonment of themselves for the mission of God to lost people. Ephesus became the very center, the very hub of evangelism across Asia. I see real excitement as people are studying the scriptures with Paul. Uh, in the midst of all the conflict, in the midst of all the idolatry, they're dialing into the scripture, and they're aligning their lives with what they see. I see people here that are leaving their uh, cultural ways, they're leaving their idolatry and the magic and all the stuff that was in their past, and they're being transformed by the Holy Spirit. In a word, what I see here is authentic heart change. People that had leaned into the Holy Spirit and God was transforming their lives. The Ephesians appear to have started well. Genuine belief 
deep interest in God, transformation in their lives, heart change that was obvious to everyone. And yet, somewhere along the way, they lost that fire. They abandoned their first love. Maybe they just got comfortable. I'm not sure. Verse 5 tells us to remember then, this is the antidote, from where you have fallen, remember, and repent. Do the works you did at first. If not, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. It's interesting. Uh, John, uh, Jesus doesn't tell us through John that the people of the church should try harder. He doesn't tell them they should try something new. He doesn't tell them to study more facts about the Bible. But instead, he admonishes the people in this church to remember and to repent. He admonishes them to go back to their first love, to remember those things which were true. Otherwise, he says, this church will have its lampstand removed. A church that doesn't have light flowing from it is no longer a church. The lampstand would be removed. Verse 6, you have this for you. You hate the word of the Nicolaitans. I tell you, I hate Nickelodeon on TV too, so I'm with them here. But verse 7, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit of God is saying to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. John reminds us that even in our repentance, even in our remembrance, it's good that we push back against false ideas. Okay? He, he always remembers that. He always recognizes that. But it's not enough. In fact, religious pursuit, religiosity, without the heart change actually misses the heart of God. Conquering here suggests spiritual warfare, and we read about that in Ephesians chapter 6. We live in a world that's tainted by sin, and conquering sin here indicates that it's possible. It's possible for Christians to actually conquer sin and to walk with God. But I think we have to not miss an essential point that's right here in the Scriptures. Um, if we don't conquer, if we're not a conqueror, it's talking about not eating the tree of life. I think what, what uh, the author is, is saying is this, that religiosity and all the form and all the Bible knowledge and all those things okay, uh, don't equate being part of eating the tree of life at the end. Okay? You can be very, very religious... Okay, and never have the heart change that puts you in alignment with God. That's a really strong message right here from this message in the church. The tree of life that we're talking about here uh, showed up in the Garden of Eden at the beginning, remember? They were cast out of the garden so that they would not eat of the tree of life. I was talking to a nephew about this passage, what his view was. He's pretty involved in his church. And he said, well, would you want to eat of the tree of life in the condition of sinfulness and have that be your forever? You know? I, th I guess not, right? Um, so they were banished from the garden. 
But the tree of life shows up again in Revelation 20, when God is talking about what's to come. Okay, the tree of life will be there again, and Christians will be eating of the tree of life together in the paradise of God. Those who conquer will eat of the tree of life. A church that's abandoned its first love ceases to be a church. Yeah, it's not a church anymore. The lamp is extinguished. It might look like a church. It might have lots of money and lots of people that go there. They may do all the things that an American church does. But John is saying that a cultural substitute does not equate a genuine church. I'd like to tell the story of the maple tree in my backyard because I think it illustrates this church at Ephesus. We lost a 90-year-old maple tree. I was counting the rings, and I think it was about 90, the best I could do. Um, I would never have guessed that this tree would come down. Now, I have an old walnut tree, and I got an old, really old oak tree in the back, kind of virgin timber. I got a cherry tree that's not healthy at all. It's got to come down. Any of those trees would have come down. Okay? But that storm that came through a week ago on Wednesday, I guess they're like crosswinds or something. I don't know what happened. But this tree, seemingly healthy, it's, it's 20 inches across at the bottom. It's this big. The straight trunk goes up like 30 feet, and then the tree itself is 70 feet tall. Strong, hard maple tree. I never would have guessed that tree came down. It stood there pretty majestic, right? But I tell you, when that wind came through, it's like God grabbed that tree pulled it out of the ground, and threw it down, okay? When you stand next to that thing, the trunk is here, and there's this big ball of dirt that goes over. Well, that tree just came down. It's just like, it's over. That tree is done. Everybody looking at that tree would say, man, that's, that's a, that was a tree to be admired. It was a beautiful tree. How could it possibly have come down? Well, I started cutting into the tree to uh, take, it, you know, take it up off the yard and all that stuff, and I realized that as I cut into the branches at the top, that there was death and decay that was hidden from view. As I cut into those branches, there were hollow branches, branches that were filled with peat moss and stuff that was you know, rotting up there, stuff you could never see from the ground. Now, I don't think that tree fell because of the decay. I think God decided that tree was no longer going to be in my backyard, and he <laughs> threw that thing down. But, uh, <clears throat> but I tell you this. What that tree teaches me about the church is this. You can look at a majestic church that seems so strong, so sound, standing firmly. Okay? But unless that tree, uh, or unless that church remains with its first love, um, that church has decay inside that's going to destroy it. The Bible places great emphasis in doctrinal purity and clear teaching. There's no doubt about that. Discernment, pushback against false ideas is essential. But a church that takes its focus off of its first love has already begun to die, even though that may not be obvious to people that are around. So may Lighthouse always remember to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit and remain full of people who loudly and clearly say yes to Jesus in all that he is asking us to do. A group of people who always find excitement in studying the scripture together, in hearing the voice of God, and aligning our lives with what he has said. 
May we be a church that pushes back the familiar ways of culture, but instead a church that walks in transformation in step with the Holy Spirit. And may we be a church that lives in reckless abandonment of our own agendas, and may we live our lives on mission with God, his mission for the gospel to lost people in our community. And may we be a church that always remembers, always remembers what Jesus has done for us. I'd like to finish today just by reading a couple passages. First is from John chapter 15. Jesus, in the last part of his life, says this to his disciples. This is my commandment. Love each other in the same way I have loved you. There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you slaves because a master doesn't confide in his slaves. Now you are my friends since I have told you everything that the Father has told me. You didn't choose me. I chose you. And I appointed you to go and to produce lasting fruit so that the Father will give you everything you ask for using my name. This is my command. Love each other. And then 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If I speak with the language of angels, but I don't love others, I would be nothing but a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. As we do each week at Lighthouse, this is going to be a time of prayer. And if you would like to pray today with somebody, we'll have prayer leaders at the corners of the room. And anyone here can take advantage. You don't have to have an earth-shattering thing happening in your life. It might just be that you want to thank God for Lighthouse. (laughs) Whatever God is calling you to pray about, uh, prayer leaders are coming. And during the last song, uh, please take advantage and feel free to pray to the God who created us. Let me pray for us. God in heaven, we uh, reach toward you this morning, and we ask that your Holy Spirit would open our hearts and minds and that you would draw us to you in a way that can't be repelled. We want to know you. I pray for each person in this room that you would draw those forward who should be praying right now. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for joining us. If you'd like to learn more about Lighthouse Community, check out our website at mylighthousecommunity.com or connect with us on Facebook. You're invited to join us live Sunday mornings at 909 or 1111. Thanks again for listening to the Lighthouse Community Podcast.